Give your attention now to the Word of God. We are still in Acts chapter 2 with the gathering of the early disciples there in Jerusalem following the day of Pentecost. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Twice in this text, it mentions the breaking of bread. I believe this was probably done in two places. It was done together publicly in large meetings, probably as many as possibly could be served there in the portico at the temple where the early church would often meet, and in private homes. In fact, Paul describes the work of the New Testament ministry pretty much like that. In Acts 20, he talks about how he ministered, and he ministered publicly and from house to house. And that's really the way our ministry is. It's public in that we come together in convocation and assembly and gather together as a church for worship services such as this, and we share the communion together, the breaking of bread, but then also in our homes. The Christian faith is not something we do between four walls. That's one of the problems we have in our country today. People think our First Amendment gives us the right to worship. Well, worship is to be done to the Lord at all times and in all places. It cannot be limited to the walls of the church. It's got to move out into our homes and it's got to become beyond public. It's got to become something personal to us as well. And that's what I think we have here. It's, this is an interesting Sunday today. Uh, we have been through the seasons of Easter and Epiphany and Pentecost. And we are coming next week, believe it or not, we are starting our season of Advent, moving us toward Christmas Day. Today is Christ the King Day, the Sunday before the Advent season. It's the time when we recognize God as our sovereign, God as our supreme provider and protector, the one to whom we all owe allegiance. To not come to him is an act of rebellion. To refuse to trust him is an act of insurrection. To not follow in his footsteps 
is an unforgivable waywardness. All men, women, children, all creatures great and small owe an allegiance to the rightful king of the universe. And when we preach, we preach the crown rights of King Jesus. And we call upon all to bow their heads, to bend their knees to His Lordship. The failure to do so is of great consequence. For the Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. The only distinguishing feature is do you do it on this side of the coming of Christ to earth or on the other side of His return? Do you do it when you see Him by the eye of faith, believing in Him as He comes to you in the gospel and in the story and in the truth and the proclamation of His living and dying and rising again and ascending to heaven? Or do you bow your knee when you see Him in His majesty and glory when He comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon those that know Him not and obey not His gospel. At that point, it will be everlastingly too late. You will recognize His sovereignty, but it will be the sovereignty of a solemn and a serious judge who will condemn you rightfully and justly for your sins to a life eternal of condemnation. It's a serious, it's a serious contemplation. But the believers in Jesus Christ in the New Testament here in this period of time found this time to be a time of thanksgiving. We just came through our season of thanksgiving. This is a, a Sunday that celebrates that as well. It says that they praise the Lord they receive their food with gladness and generous hearts. Sounds like a Thanksgiving dinner to me. They gathered together and broke the bread and enjoyed the meal. But there was a special part of that meal. In that meal before them and almost every meal you'll ever eat, there will be some product of the grain, the wheat or the barley or the oats or or the rice, or something before us will give us a picture of the bread. And the bread is pictured throughout the entire scriptures as being very significant. And this meal that the disciples shared together in the breaking of the bread is extremely, extremely significant. Let me just survey it quickly for you. I, I think I will probably not say anything this morning that will will be a surprise to you. Uh, but I want to sort of draw some threads together. All the way through Scripture, we find the Lord has wanted to have a meal with His people. We see it in Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham 
came back from the great, what amounted to a world war. The kings of the north were fighting the kings of the south. All the ancient world was involved in a conflict. There were 15 or more uh, kingdoms involved in a big war. And at the following this war, Abraham came back and he passed by the ancient city, which became Jerusalem. And there was a king there who was a priest of the Most High God. And Abraham offered a tithe. But Abraham and Melchizedek, who was, of course, a type of Christ as a priest and a king, a king of righteousness, shared a meal. And it was, the scripture says, bread and wine. We see it as we move through the life of Abraham not too many years later. Abraham entertains strange guests who sort of show up one day at the door of his tent and they come to bring a prophecy and they come to bring fellowship, but Abraham greets them and he prepares for them a meal. And one of the things that he instructs Sarah to do with her servant is to prepare a meal of fine flour, the bread, the bread of life. We see the meal being prepared with God's people in the wilderness. In the Passover before they leave Egypt and in the wilderness, God provides for them manna each day, daily bread he gives them. When he constructs or has Moses to construct the tabernacle, one of the features of the tabernacle is a piece of furniture. It's a table, the table of showbread. It's the table that has 12 loaves freshly baked each day and placed and displayed out to represent the 12 tribes. And it's interesting that several places in scripture, it's called the bread of the presence. God's presence is with his people in this displayed and arrayed bread. We see it in scripture as we come forward. In the ecstatic prophets, Elijah fed over a hundred people with just a loaf. Elisha came upon a situation where the people were dying because there was poison in the soup. There was poison in the pot. It had been contaminated with the sinfulness of the people. And what did Elisha do? What miracle did he perform? What did he do to restore this from death giving poison to life giving substance? He put into the mix fine flour. He put bread into the pot and gave it the ability to give life and not death. In the Old Testament, one of the most beautiful pictures, let me just turn over to read it. I like, I like to read this particular uh, passage if I can find it here. It's a picture of God's promise of a meal that he will have with his people. 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of mara, of aged wine well-refined. There's a feast that will be prepared upon the mountain. And it's interesting, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away from their faces all tears. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. What happens there? It's a picture of a meal whereby there's an atonement that is made. It's a picture of a meal whereby life is given and death is destroyed. What is happening here? Well, the next verse, verse 10 of chapter 25 of Isaiah says, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. His presence will be there. This feast that is to come. And when we get to the life of Christ, we begin to see the fulfillment of so many of these things in this meal that the Lord has for his people. In fact, strangely enough, Jesus refers to himself as that manna in the wilderness. He himself in his body, in his flesh, he himself is the life-giving bread, the bread of life. And he tells everyone, except you gnaw my flesh and gulp my blood, you have no part in me. Purposefully and deliberately making it obvious and emphatic that God's people are to partake of him as though they would partake of a meal. And as we pointed out before, the two miracles that Jesus did that might be labeled miracles of excess, superabundance, overflowing, was the feeding of 5,000 with but a few loaves and the turning of the water into wine from water to the best wine, gallons and gallons and gallons of it, far more than was needed on that occasion. God looks forward to a day when there'll be a feast with his people. We stand today with the partaking in the Lord's Supper between those two great feasts. All of the feasts that are outlined in the Old Testament are prophetic. They are predictive of a grand feast. And that is the feast that we have together when we partake of Christ by faith. But even that is predictive and prophetic of a great feast that is yet to come. The great feast of the last day, the great feast of the eschaton, the great feast of heaven, the marriage supper 
of the Lamb. So when we gather around this table and have this feast, there are several things that are happening and they're happening at once. And this is a sacrament of the church. And the word sacrament means, it translates, it's a Latin word that translates the Greek word mysterion. It's a mystery. There's just a lot about it that is left to the eye of faith and understanding what it means. It, it is such a simple, simple ceremony. Many ceremonies and rituals of religious experiences elaborate and go forever. The, the Old Testament feasts and festivals were elaborate. They went for days. They were involved in all kinds of preparations. But here we have the real fulfillment of it all in Christ. So we don't need the elaborateness of the ceremony for we have the person himself. So all we need by way of sacrament and ceremony in the Christian faith are just little things that remind us, that signify to us, that seal to us these realities. A little splash of water a little crust of bread and a little sip of wine. That's it. Says it all. Everything we need are bound in those two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's table. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, we find that it is a fellowship. It is a communion. At the church at Corinth, according to the correspondence that Paul has with them, we find they had a love feast and they would enjoy it to the most. In fact, he had to correct them a little bit. There were some excesses. There were some things that were getting a little bit out of hand. Paul had to admonish. But what they were doing was that which the early church had done and that which we do and that which the church has done down through the centuries and that is they were participating in a meal together. That's why we don't have in, in our understanding of this particular sacrament, we don't have private masses. That is, we don't serve one-on-one -on -one like they do in other, other parts of the Christian faith. We see that it must be communion. There must be the church. There must be people. There must be uh, elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder, face to face type of a relationship because it belongs to God and his people and the body of Christ participates together. When we go serve communion to someone in the hospital or someone homebound, well, I don't just go by myself with the little kit. You know, I have the little kit, but we go as a as a representative of the church, we carry people with us. We have family members that join us. Usually there's an elder, maybe even a deacon, so that the church can be represented there at the bedside and in the private home, so that it still has the communal aspect. There must be communion, fellowship. It's not only a communion, it is a memorial. Jesus said, when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. It memorializes the death of Christ. His body broken, his blood shed are those things that tell us about the awful ordeal that Christ endured in his sufferings, in his beatings, and in his crucifixion, and all the things that went in that 
ordeal is described in the gospel narratives that Jesus went through. He bore the curses of the Deuteronomic covenant, privation, slander, nakedness, torture, thirst, hunger, and ultimately he was cut off from the land of the living. That's what God had promised to the sinners. And Jesus took those curses in his own body on the tree. And when we celebrate the Lord's death, we partake knowing that the death he died was the death we should have died. And he was dying in our place and in our stead and on our behalf and for us in every sense. It's not only a fellowship memorial, but it's a Eucharist. Yeah, that's a good word. We, we don't use it so much in Presbyterian circles, but the Eucharist just simply means a thanksgiving. We've come through a season of thanksgiving, but perhaps it was maybe focused on our uh, good fortune in life. It may be focused on our family. It may be focused on all these wonderful things that we are glad that we have. It may be uh, the things that the Lord has given us and that we accept from His hand. And it's a genuine thanksgiving, but this thanksgiving centers around Christ and what we have in Him and the preciousness of the gift of God to us of Christ Himself. It is not only a fellowship, a memorial, a Eucharist, but it is also a presence. Denominations of the Christian faith have differed on the nature and the extent of the real presence of Christ in this meal. And there's been debate going back and forth and the arguments are tedious and they're logical and they're, they're delightful to follow, but except for just a rare group of exceptional extremists, the majority of the family of God, regardless of the denomination, over the 20 centuries of Christianity have always held that there is a sense in which Christ is with his people. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open, I will come in and will sup with him. I will have supper with him and he with me. This is a promise to the Christians, to the churches, and that he will be with us in this. He is apprehended by faith we believe it is in the taking of the elements. We believe it's, it's mere bread, it's mere wine. But oh, what it represents. Oh, what it points us to. And that is the body and the blood of Christ. And constituting together the life in the blood, the very presence of Christ himself. Do you see that? Do you feel that? Are you conscious of that when you meet with your elders among the congregation here when we have our communion together. And then, as I mentioned earlier, and I shall close here, it is a foretaste. It's a foretaste. It's a foretaste of that great banquet in eternity. The banquet that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a delightful little story. Most of you are familiar with it. Over in the Old Testament, during the life of King David, King David had enjoyed incredible success as a king and was 
doing very well and was in many ways at the spiritual peak of his life and of his reign. When he was overcome with an urge, he wanted to just do something as king that would express kindness. He wanted to, is there anyone that I can show kindness to, said David. And his kindness was focused. It was focused on a particular person, and that was his lifelong friend, Jonathan, the son of Saul. Jonathan and Saul both had died in battle. And hearing the news in the panic, the nursemaid of the five-year-old son of Jonathan had grabbed up the five-year-old child and, ran, and, and had run, and in running, fell the child, dropped the child, and broke the child's legs such that your child could never walk. And that's who David had his people find. Find me that little boy who's now older and grown somewhat and bring him to me so that I might show him kindness. And listen to the one verse, actually one half of a verse. So Mephibosheth, that's the little boy, lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. That's where we're headed. We're going to live in Jerusalem and we're going to eat always, forever, at the king's table. 